Welcome to Startup Stories, where we go behind the scenes of some of the most interesting and innovative tech startups in the world. Each episode will bring you in-depth interviews with entrepreneurs and business leaders, sharing their personal stories on success, failure, and everything in between. So whether you're an entrepreneur yourself or someone that's just generally interested in the world of startups, then Startup Stories is the perfect place for you to gain insight and inspiration into some of the most exciting players in the game. So sit back, relax, and join us on a journey of Startup Stories. Hi, Philip. Welcome to the Startup Stories podcast. Hey, Jordan. Nice to see you. Good to be here. Likewise. My pleasure. My pleasure. So for the listeners, could you give them a brief introduction into who you are? Sure. So I'm Philip. I'm the co-founder and CEO of um, LeFi, short for Linked Finance. Um, we are a multi-chain middleware. So essentially any business that wants to interact with crypto, no matter what that means, that means no matter on which blockchain it's happening, no matter which asset we are talking about, you somehow need to access it, you need to move it, you need to move information and assets across these different chains. And for that, we have developed a middleware. Um, we are a 40 people company. We have raised $23 million over three rounds um, of the past two years, have been growing pretty fast. We are serving the largest wallets in the space and large corporations that are about to touch uh, crypto. Spent the past 10 years building companies in B2B software as a service. Yeah, I was just going to say, this is not your first company, is it? Yeah, we um, actually, my co-founder and I, my, his name is Max, he's my CTO. We're both very technical. We met um, when we were beginning our 20s. We spent five, six years building um, Stomped, which was a B2B software as a service in the gaming industry. After that, we tried multiple things in biotech and after that um, in marketplace intelligence. And yeah, um, we learned a lot along the way and specifically around um, data. So everything was very data intense and that's kind of our specialty, backends. How old was you when you first started your first company? Oh, my first one when I was 15. Uh, I was never employed. I started my first company uh, during school, uh, second one while I was graduating. And then I met Max and from there on we worked together. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's been a, been a long journey together, which is good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So what I want to understand is you're doing what you're doing now, which is fantastic. It looks amazing from the outside looking in. But I really want to know who Philip is, what made you the person you are today. So for me to understand that, I want to go back to your childhood. Take me back to your childhood from your earliest memory. Earliest memory, really hard. It was definitely, I grew up in a loving environment. So I'm pretty grateful for my parents uh, regarding that. If you talk about the earliest memories. I also grew up pretty free. So my parents allowed me to, I don't know, jump into the lake or do whatever I wanted to when I was small. So um, even though it meant it would become dirty. And um, at the same time, uh, I was uh, always very energetic, um, driven um, to do things. So I was a lot out playing outside most of the time. Uh, I don't know, building things in the uh, in the forest um, or running a lot, uh, climbing a lot, these things, you know. And I was always trying to be good at things. That's certainly something I can say. I was always trying to be the best in everything, except school. So school was really not my thing. It was the one thing where there was an authority suddenly telling me what to do and telling me how fast to think and digest. And uh, I think pretty early on, I noticed that this is just not the way I want to grow and learn. And... I never got out of that uh, mindset. So I was a really bad student, but discovered early on what I wanted to do. So I started programming when I was like 12 years old and um, I really focused on that. Programming, hacking, and that was kind of my thing. You say that school wasn't your thing. Was this throughout your entire schooling life or was this in like your sort of senior years? 
entire school life entire school whenever there was an authoritarian thing above me it was problematic as it might have started in kindergarten it's literally uh, school and also uh, university uh, i was at uni i studied business computing which is like a mix of economics and informatics but i literally learned a few days before um, the tests and that's it and spent most of the time just building companies, working as a freelancer, making money. Um, and it was kind of a side thing. So I, I really enjoyed the time because I made plenty of good friends. And But essentially it was good parties and a lot of work. I want to try and really work out why you had, had an issue with authority. Because the reason why I'm asking that is because I feel very similar into what you're saying. And I know my sort of reasonings, but I'm curious why why you felt like you know authority was, was not a good clash for you and uh, you like to do what you did i always felt it was hindering me in my own progression it felt too slow everything felt too slow and i'm very impatient with myself and others so in school it was always like it was not about having a hard time keeping pace with a class it was the other way around like for me it was just a burden to have to to, to have to wait or to have to keep pace, you know, to, to, to adjust to that pace. It was just like, yeah. And, and also I think there are different learning types, right? And uh, I'm, I'm pretty good at learning. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty good at learning, but that uh, frontal education system we have, like a teacher in the front and, and this is kind of, it, it was not the right way for me. And uh, I think I'm, yeah, I, <laughs> learning by doing is hard. I, I do believe we need a, an education system where, We all learn certain things that should be basics, basic math, basic foreign language, like yeah. for us, like having grown up in Germany, English was important and I wish I learned it earlier. And uh, um, so we started from the fifth class onwards. Um, nowadays, they learn it in the first class. I wish that would have been different back then. But yeah, it's a, it's a education is a huge ship and it's on. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I really resonate with what you were just saying there. Uh, no one size fits all is absolutely the answer children should be from a very early age uh, taking a few tests to work out what way they learn best and then go down that route because no two people are the same so yeah completely agree with that okay so can you take me to a or can you think of a pivotal moment in your life that has essentially made you the person you are today or had the biggest impact on who you are today there are certainly multiple ones i had to repeat a class because i spent all my time doing just like I didn't attend tests anymore even I was like really like not an easy student in that sense well I was easy by not being there right <laughs> so, <laughs> I had to repeat a class and that had a certainly had an impact changing my school I at some point I wanted to change school I didn't feel comfortable in the first in, in, in that school I was in didn't like the teacher didn't like the mentality it, it was just nothing felt right neither the people nor the teachers and it was so far away. I had developed myself so differently at the same time while school was happening I was really into skateboarding, programming. Those were my two things. And as I mentioned, I'm extreme in the things I do. So so there was this very strong desire to follow my passions. And it was also really hard for my parents, actually. Like, I'm, I feel sorry when I look back. Um, mm. It must have been really hard for them. They must have been worried. But I knew that, like, with this programming thing, with the web, I felt so much at home. Uh, on the internet that way and building this and and being able to develop websites trying out different business models like i tried all of it from affiliate marketing to search engine optimization uh, game and all of that what you could do beginning the 20s you know like it was super exciting not beginning 20s beginning 2000s 
and onwards. So this was kind of, so repeating the class was a thing. Changing school was a thing. And then stopping to work on my first company, I got funding for. When I was graduating, I got a very small funding. I think it was 25,000 or something. But for a nine, for I was, I was 18 or something, 17, yeah, wow. 18. For me, it was a lot of money, right? I had my first, I didn't pay myself salary. I just had a, a first em, em, uh, employee back then. Developers were much cheaper back then, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he was 20 years older. <laughs> was, but the, the business partner I had back then, um, I felt left alone. He was kind of a business angel, but he, I expected too much from him. His role was to be the co-founder and I didn't see that in him. And we didn't have enough money to actually do more. It was that, that all of that was not enough was just like, yeah, I, it was one of the hardest lessons to learn that you need a strong co-founder. That was a mm -hmm. hard lesson. And on the co-founder side, I had many lessons, by the way, during the past 10 years. It's crazy. It's, it's the toughest part of all of it, I feel. Finding a strong co-founder you can trust and that like, that's complementary to you, but at the same time, you have enough overlap that you have no communication gap. That's what Max and I am having, are having, and this is worth so much. Max, then, you said you've been, you've been aligned with each other for quite a while. When did you first meet? 2012 or 13. There was a flood in Passau, which is a city close to Munich, small city, student yeah. city, 50,000 citizens, 12,000 of them students. I lost my apartment back then. Uh, I had a shared flat. Most rooms um, got underwater in the first floor. It was the biggest flood in 500 years or something. So wow. almost 13 meters high of water. So it really, uh, yeah, so it destroyed half of the city. As a result of that, the students had to clean it up. So because they were the fittest and youngest, right? So it was about like we had to uh, uh, shovel out the mud of all these apartments. And there, there was, was a lot going on. And it was very uncoordinated. The university back then tried to coordinate that alongside the city, but it was very inefficient. So I sat down at a friend's apartment. And I wrote an app. I wrote an app to coordinate people. Um, you could, um, without having to have an account, say, hey, I need five people with shovels um, at this address. And then people could say, I'm coming with two people. And so it was like a matchmaking, an anonymous matchmaking on coordinating people. And the university picked it up, the city picked it up, and there were other other cities that also were flooded. Um, they also picked it up. And Max, uh, my co-founder uh, then, uh, like I didn't know him back then, but he was working at the university in a faculty of uh, informatics. So he wrote me an email. I was like, hey, man, can I help you? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and uh, then he pretty quickly refactored the code. And was, it was so much cleaner afterwards. I was like, okay, I can learn something from him. That was a good first experience. And then a few months before I was in Berlin for six months, I had an idea to Uh, which was like for feedback solution. And it was, um, after all that was done, I was approaching, hey, I have that idea. Why don't we work on it together? Compared to me, Max was the complete opposite. No, Max was always like the best student in his class. He had scholarships and grants and because he was so good, uh, multiple ones. Uh, and he has, I think he's even jumped the class and, and all of it. So he was complete opposite. But we had, so we had the same drive channeled in a different way. While he was learning, he was good in school and he was uh, also learning to program. I, at the same time, learned all kinds of online marketing disciplines. I knew everything, everything back then that was available about um, search engine optimization, search engine advertising, affiliate marketing, how all of that works technically, writing trackers, um, tracking pixel, whatever, all of that stuff. Like I, I knew how that works and how to implement it. We had that business 
saviness uh, combined with with that thoroughness and Max is a very grounded person I'm a very energetic driven person so it was like different personality profiles but a huge technical overlap so there was always like no communication gap in what we wanted to accomplish together that was incredibly valuable it's still today still today we can always there's no communication gap because the technical overlap is so big and that's 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 worth a lot yeah but that's how we met and then we started working on this i more than him because he still respected his study i didn't so <laughs> <laughs> so it took it took us a while to get him in full time so i organized uh, that we actually got a scholarship from the german state and university uh, like a founder scholarship we had that then and that that's where he, i got him full time but it took me two years to get that <laughs> it's a very interesting story though and you've been going 11 years strong so all looks good <laughs> okay so You say, how do I say it? Li-Fi, is that right? Li-Fi, Li-Fi. Man, I'm, I'm, you, you're going to laugh about this, but essentially, so it's called Li-Fi because it's short Li-Fi. for linked finance, right? So it makes sense if you shorten it, it's Li-Fi. But I mean, we're mainly selling or talking to Americans or we're speaking in English all the time. So, so Li-Fi is just so much easier. Uh, we're actually having the debate to simply make it easier for the world and call it Li-Fi. Um, maybe that's that's um, the appropriate thing. It flows to more do. naturally, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. But also, there's you know there's there's a there's a Wi-Fi competitor called Li-Fi. Oh really? So yeah, it's it's wireless, but with light. It only works in very close proximity, but it's in industrial environments. Um, it can be used. You you wouldn't use that at home. But uh, we kind of discovered it too late. And because uh, we came from linked finance and we shortened it to li.finance, 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 uh, which was the first domain. And then we, we got access to li.fi, like a, a four-character domain. I cannot recall a second brand that has a four-character domain. Come on. So I, I, I had <laughs> to get that one. It took me six months to get that domain, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, God, that's a yeah, long time. That was a nerdy dream come true to have such a short domain. So I had to stick with the name. There's no way around that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is good actually. Okay, so talk to me about your path. That you know, you've had multiple businesses before, but tell me about your path that led you to, to found the company LeFi or LifeFi. Tell me about that. I don't know if the path so much plays a role on this specific company in a sense. I think it's pretty clear like we have always been founders always been seeking topics that interested us the gaming thing kind of happened naturally I think stomped which was like that feedback platform it was a feedback social network so it was a very idealistic let's make the be- the world better idea um, that's also why it didn't work these ideas almost never work right it was a very idealistic idea we at some point shaped this toward the gaming industry which is very community driven or is supposed to be um, or community intense let's say at least that and so we kind of tried to sell on community-driven development as a community-driven game development. Didn't work. Took us a while to figure out. We also met so many first-time founder failures back then. It was was ridiculous. So we learned a lot during these years. It was very, very painful. Very painful. Uh, one of the hardest things for me to realize um, that that's not it. And after that, biotech. Biotech, I always found bioinformatics super interesting. Um, my father mm. is a biochemist. My sister is a biotechnological assistant at home so so the topics were they were not even that present but some of the topic was there um and i i always had a very strong interest in health longevity and all of that so this whole 
idea around working with genes and RNA was super intriguing to me. And then being able to use my technical skills to help cancer patients, that was amazing. Right? Was the idea to, to dive deeper into that. Unfortunately, the biotech space is very reputation-driven and you need a chief scientific officer. That person is more important than the, than the CEO. In that chief scientific officer has to have published um, in certain journals about certain topics, only then he's trustworthy and has credibility enough to build in the space mm -hmm. and find clients. So it's you are dependent on a third party. And if you want to go on cutting edge topics, we did new antigen prediction back then, which is cut still today is cutting edge. Back then, very early, it was like trying to find a unicorn. We found one. We tried for some time. We failed. And also coming from the web, moving fast, breaking things in biotech, that doesn't work. People are very uh, cautious about the reputation and cautious in general because we are talking about human data and human lives and all of that. So move fast, break things. That mentality doesn't really work there. So there was a strong conflict in mentality and, and culture. It was really hard to align with these people. We tried it with two different teams. Didn't work out. We moved on and we went into marketplace intelligence for Indonesian honor marketplaces. Max and I always had a favor for automations. So writing a huge bot system that would crawl all kinds of data from websites was kind of uh, a thing we liked. We did that. We were too early in that market. We smoke tested, actually. So we had good numbers on the smoke test. We were very cautious if we want to go down that road or not. But uh, just because the value proposition works doesn't mean that the product in the end finds adoption. We were simply too early in terms of um, how the market functions. And after that, a friend of mine called me and was like, hey, can you help me out with an NFT project? And I was like, NFTs, uh, NBA Top Shots was hyped back then, beginning 2021. So there was a hackathon going on. We did that for a weekend. And then we were like, pfft. Super hard to build in the Web3 space. And then there was another hackathon, hackathon called um, Scaling Ethereum. And we were looking at blockchain throughput rates, which are way too low to scale for humanity, right? You're like, okay, the future, at least for a certain period of time, has to be multi chain in some way. And we had so much experience with databases. Um, so kind of, it, it was pretty clear to us. So we did another hackathon that went on almost a month, three to four weeks, full time, all about scaling technologies. And we thought if this ecosystem is supposed to grow up, someone has to aggregate these services and abstract it away. And that's what Levi is doing. That's a long story to it. No, very insightful. Okay, so you're, what, two years last month now? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, two yeah. years last month. Yeah, from zero to... Did you do to anything to celebrate? No, I didn't. I missed it when we actually started. But it's sort of actually, it's hard to pinpoint down the day we started working on this. But yeah, we literally like... May 12th, two years ago. So today is May 12th, right? We probably just came out with a prototype, first prototype, something like that, about to release it two years ago. And then in July, we raised a seed round, 2.7 million. And then six months later, a bridge round, another two and a half. And it's crazy how fast all of that went. And then another six months later, we started work on the Series A, which took us seven months. The market fell apart. It was so hard. I spoke to 340 investors for our Series A. Wow. 340. I flew to Amsterdam. I met some Jewish family office that asked if they can invest in cash. I spoke to everyone. I spoke to Sequoia China, to Sequoia India, to Sequoia US. <laughs> My lead investor from the seed round was, was recently telling me, Philip, you exhausted the market. But we did it. Like, mm -hmm. now we're good for, the, for, for two, two and a half years. But it was a pain in the ass. Sounds crazy. What do you do then? So, like, when you're looking for, like, your Series A, what's the, the first action point? Do you start networking on LinkedIn or with 
communities to find investors? No, not at all. It all works introduction driven. First, I do my homework. So a pretty concise pitch deck, a blurb. A blurb is like a small text, like an elevator pitch in writing. People can write to introduce you. And a data room, a data room that has contains all the links to everything that represents you from your LinkedIn profile to the website to the Twitter account, a small primer on the valuation and what we are raising money for, um, links to our financial uh, projections, links to our org chart, links to... So like do your homework. Being very structured about it helps a lot. Uh, then you have a target list. Uh, so our desired lead investors and yep. um, then a list of all the investors we know and all those people who can make introductions. Then you start pitching to investors you don't really care about, which is good because your pitch will change a lot and you will be able to tell based on verbal reactions and body language if your pitch is too long, too short. And at some point, you reflect on each single word you're saying. That story becomes so clear and the story also changes. In the beginning, you speak at length, you, you pitch five minutes. And in the end, I pitched, I don't know, 45 seconds in the end. That's what we are building. Bumps. And then, uh, you know, like all of that is a lot of practice, uh, takes a lot of practice. And that, that changed a lot. And you can optimize a lot around this. And then you have to work your network. You have to get introduced to people. That's the only way. And everyone who likes you, where you have the feeling they like you, ask them for an introduction, for more introductions, for more introductions. And uh, that's how you build a network over time. But I did that full time. So I had days where I had eight calls in the morning and eight calls in the evening. Wow. Like 16 calls a day. It's what it takes though, right? If you want to achieve things like this. Yeah, yeah. But it also, one more thing maybe, it also, for first-time founders, this is incredibly hard. You don't have the network and you don't know how your pitch deck is supposed to look like, which information belongs in there, what is too much, your data room, doing the homework, how to present. There are so many micro skills around this. Like this is just a whole thing. You have to do it over and over again. First-time founders are really successful. If you really are an entrepreneurial personality you have to do it again and again and again and again and eventually you have a strong network people recognize you from pitching four years ago things like that you know and these things are helping you out fundraising is just a skill on its own and you have to embrace it you have to understand that getting a no is the default right so don't get frustrated just because you just got 50 no's yeah i'm really really uh really happy you explained that to me like that because i thought funding was like people see how good of work you're doing in the market and they can see your company going about so they reach out to you i didn't realize it was to the extent of what you just said i mean yeah maybe for like the pre-seed or seed round when you're unknown but yeah i didn't realize it was quite like that very very fascinating you want to get interest and then it's once you have refined your pitch a bit and you feel more comfortable, you start getting, you already collect intros to your potential lead investors. So essentially the way it works is mm -hmm. you need to get your basic setup. You have your desired lead investors. First, you do your basic setups. You do a few rounds of pitching. In the meanwhile, you gather potential introductions to your lead investors. And then you want to get introduced to them all at the same time. And because you want to create internal competition, That's very important. Like in your round, you want to create competition. So at some point, you talk to all these desired lead investors at once and try to get term sheets. Once you have a lead investor, other investors will follow on. It's very easy to mm -hmm. get follow on investors. So they simply say, hey, all right, that guy, the due diligence, okay, fine, I'm in. I, I simply trust that firm, I'm coming in. But you need to prepare yourself to be able to talk to these lead investors because once they said no, They're going to stick with it. There is, in general, no turnaround. They don't want to lose face yeah. in their decision. Yeah, I can imagine. What's been the hardest challenge building LiFi? The right processes around everything from funding 
to hiring people, finding good talent and filtering good talent and not getting scammed and not wasting time with bad talent. This is hard. So we are very strict by now on how we hire people. There is no hiring without a test week. Not a single one, yeah. right? Only if you do test weeks amongst a variety of candidates, you will be able to even differentiate and distinguish it different skill sets and skill levels. And it's so simple, actually. Um, so we do paid trial weeks, but you have to fail a lot to realize that because you think, ah, that guy was nice. I liked him. Like, let's hire him, right? Like, that's how you go for it. Like, oh yeah, culture is important. We have to vibe. It's all right. But no matter how much you like a person, you have to be able to see how much attention to detail How is that person thinking? How is that person working? And a simple task you give to everyone helps you to get the full range. I can give examples if you want to. It's uh, amazing. Yeah, no, that's a, a really good way of doing things. So you, sort of, you do a paid trial week or is it a paid trial first month? Paid trial week, just a week. I'll give you an yeah. example. Let's say we hire an operations person. We would say to them, hey, we want you to create us a payroll in Excel. Just a payroll database where you track your employees and how much salary they get. The amount of, like the variety of the results go from a written text, here's how I would do it, not sending, sending in anything, to a basic table that just has five columns without colors. The next one does the same with colors. The next one actually has a history so that you can actually track salary changes and bonuses. So it's like a, it has a pivot table, an aggregated, an aggregated uh, table where you can see how... So whenever you want to change someone's salary, you add a new entry and that table always takes the newest entry of each unique person in that table. Things like up until Visual Basic scripts. We had everything, mm -hmm. full range. And, and then you can see like how much forward thinking are these people, how experienced are these people because a week is, is, is we have a limited time. How important is the role to them? Like you can, attention to detail, experience level. Also, I think like what people expect from themselves to deliver, right? And this says laws about the attitude. It's amazing. So even for the most simplest roles you think, always do a test week. And same for code. Um, we see if they document the code, how well they describe what they have done, how is the intendation and is, is everything clean? How do they name variables? Um, what's the attitude towards their own work? And we pay them for that so that there's no excuse, right? We yes, like, hey, we pay you for this week and you just go for that one task. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good idea. It, it does a lot. It makes so much sense. So you, then there's no stone left unturned then and you know for sure what you're getting yourself in for because you're absolutely right someone could look amazing on paper they can also come across really well on the interview even in person but then when they actually start it's it can be totally different so it makes a lot of sense makes a lot of sense okay so let's flip it then what would you say has been the key to life success so far to date exactly that hiring the right people without my team yeah <laughs> there wouldn't be <laughs> no chance no it's it's simply i think uh having a strong leadership team of course is a premise but then making making the, the right hires that are as driven and hungry as you are mm -hmm. is as important as running the marathon yourself and there's no way around hiring the best talents we can find and actually our first our first hire was a good old friend and then the second and third hire were two indians still with us The one is our head of research. The other one is our uh, jack-of-all-trades solution architect, Akshay. Shout out. And yeah, from there on, we went, we went with recommendations from them. So Arjun hired Mark. 
Mark was a recommendation from uh, Mark and Arjun worked together in the past and things like that. So they were like, yeah. But also I think, so we have 40 people now, but we have been at least, I think we have been, we have hired 70. So we have let go of 30. Crazy. But now like we have, we, we only kept the good ones. So the team we have right now is high quality, 40 people driven and reliable. Yeah, that's an interesting method to be fair, because, you know, one would say, although that's a lot of a lot of people that you've let go, you know, in a, a small amount of headcount, but at least that shows that you're not a company that settles for the average, because a lot of companies hold on to a lot of people for a long time. And that can actually be the detriment to the business's failure. It was all in the beginning, right? Since we are more strict about hiring, the fluctuation went down comp like to almost zero. No, it sounds like the right thing to do so that you're not just, as I say, wasting time. Yeah. Really good. So what's been the highlight of your journey so far then? Seeing the whole team in person the first time. We did our first company retreat beginning this year in Thailand. And for me, it was really touching to see a huge group in front of me. It was unreal. And it was like, it was just like, and then seeing that we were all vibing, like this was, I mean, of course there were internal conflicts that came up once we saw it in person. So I had, I had one-on-ones with everyone. So there were conflicts that were coming up, but the overall group dynamic was amazing. And to see that after two years of remote work, it would actually be that way. We had so much fun. We were very productive. At the same time we had, we were going out, we had fun. It was just an incredible journey. Yeah, that does sound incredible. It reminds me of a story I spoke to, I guess, a couple of weeks ago. Sven, he said the same thing when uh, we just had a nice party. And one time he just sat there and felt emotional to himself on his own, just to look at his team and see what, you know, everyone coming together for the first time. So, yeah, I completely get that. It makes it feel more, more real, right, when they're all together and you can see it in person. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the next company retreat, let's say that. But it's also expensive to fly in 40 people. So Oh so yes, I we, can imagine Thailand as well, long haul. Yeah, but but Thailand is is a cheap country, you know? Like, like Yes, it's cheap. Yeah, I've been <laughs> it, Thailand. It already it's, was a cheap choice. <laughs> that was yeah. it was already like okay, we can do it there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Cheap once you're there, but the flights are obviously a bit expensive because it's long haul. Yeah. But beautiful country. I went there in 2017, 2017, 2018. Beautiful country. Really is. So yeah, true. what's the goals then? The ambition for life? How far, how far do you want to take it? Oh, billion dollar company for sure. Yeah? Yeah, no question asked. No brainer. Will be nice. super big. I like that. I like that. Straight to the point. <laughs> so Philip then, more on you actually. So you've done what you've done with Lifi, which is fantastic. You built this 40 person team. Amazing hit this uh, 23.5 million funding. But what's your personal motivators? Why do you do what you do to this very day? What motivates you to get out of bed every morning and do this all over again? I feel I'm at the pinnacle of freedom. It's exactly what I always wanted to do. Now I can do it. Of course, it is not freedom. It is not freedom in the sense I can do whatever I want and take days off whenever I want and as much as I want. But I love everything around this because as the company is growing, 
you in your role have to constantly question yourself and and like it's also like like from a personal growth perspective it's amazing because you constantly yeah. have to question the way you communicate you have to change you have to adapt you have to be very empathetic it will increase your skill sets in in, in in a sense of being more empathetic with people they have different needs different risk aversions and desires and and hopes and so that but also of course your soft skill set from pitching to being on stage on panels communicating taking care of yourself managing like finding balance in all of this i think in the first year i gained 10 kilos I, i lost them again so i'm finally close to being in shape again but it took me some time to re even yeah. realize oh my god take a look at the mirror phil like What happened to your face? <laughs> so so that took some time. Uh, yeah, this whole journey is like the, the process is amazing. The process and then finding progress in, in, in everything. And it's, it's a constant challenge. I love what you said about freedom, though, because I'm trying to understand what you meant. I feel like I know what you meant by the word freedom. Because like you said, you know, I'm not on the same scale of you, for example, but, you know, I have my own business too. And I know that you need to have all of those hats and adapt, like you said, and I can't just go take a day off whenever I please. Because as you say, some would argue that's not freedom. But from the way you said it, the way I interpreted it was, it's freedom from a mindset standpoint, like being able to create what you want and put it in the way you would like it and all that sort of thing, freedom to flourish. Exactly. I mean, there's always the discussion around AI also, right? Like what would happen once once most of the tasks are automated and gone? What would happen? Well, people would have time to be creative again. That's how our brain works. And and building this company, having that venture capital is a, the pinnacle of freedom for me because I can express my creativity in the way I want. Some people like to paint. Some people like to play the piano. Um, I also love to do that, by the way. Um, I would love to do that more if I had more time. <laughs> but, but building the company is also a form of being creative around problem solving, constant problem solving on all levels, strategically, emotionally, with yourself, with others. Yeah, I really agree with that. I really agree and resonate with that totally. Here at Montfort, we're always thinking of new ways to be the best recruitment agency out there and stuff like that. And you really, you know, similar to any field, the principle is the same. You have to learn to adapt and be better. Otherwise, you will get left behind in any field that you're in, right? Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't matter also how small your business is. Um, there was there was is no. a reason why we never felt like, I never felt like I want to be employed. It's simply because I was never able. I never was willing to give up that freedom or that being able to be creative. Even sometimes if it, it meant to have really boring freelancer job. I hated to do, but I maintained my freedom and my my flexible working hours and and all of that. And uh, it's always a sprint. It's always a crunch. And I think uh, yeah, it, it sounds very. Pfft, Boring maybe, but but it's like, I, I think life is like a constant path of suffering so that you can find happiness again. Like, and, and this is just life. If you realize that, like, choose your battles, essentially, right? Yeah, yeah. Choose your battles. So uh, I was always confident enough that at some point things will work out. So I simply believed in maximum. Yeah, literally, as I always say, with pain comes pleasure. Seek pleasure first, you'll run into pain. So yeah. Okay, well, last question then, Philip. What's one bit of advice you would give to someone who is thinking about starting their own business? Talk to potential clients and be super hard around if there is a willingness to pay for what you want to build. And there are so many good ideas out there that do not exist for a good reason because they simply are good ideas, but not good businesses. 
So you have yeah. to differentiate between good ideas and good businesses. So you have to ask yourself, is this a potentially good idea? Yes, it is. Is this a good business though? Different question. Definitely different question. And business means, does it make money, enough money? Does it make enough money to pay myself? And if you cannot do it yourself and you need more, would it make enough money to pay for all that? <laughs> that's like what you have to ask yourself and then find a path towards it. But I think that's the most important question. So many people waste so much time with ideas that simply will never work. Oh, not now. Yeah. Absolutely. Timing is everything. That's very true as well. Yeah. Well, Philip, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. I, I loved hearing about your story and I look forward to following LiFi from afar and see how far you really take it. Can't wait till you become a billion dollar company one day. <laughs> John, thank you so much. I really like the questions. It was actually, I think, the most personal podcast I have given, like question-wise. So I never spoke that much about my past anywhere online. So thank you so much. It was an inspirational conversation. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Startup Stories. I hope you enjoyed hearing from our guests and learning more about their journey in the startup world. I'll be back soon with another exciting episode featuring a new guest. So make sure to subscribe to Startup Stories so you never miss an episode. Also, don't forget to follow me on social media for updates and additional content. And if you have any suggestions for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, please reach out to me. And as always, I appreciate your support and feedback. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.